Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Future of Application Security. Today, we have David Kosrock with us as a guest. David, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. David, it will be great if you can give a little bit of an introduction about yourself. What do you do and uh, where do you work? So we can set the right context for this conversation. Perfect. First, quick comment. Opinions I express here are my own. They don't represent those by Toast. I've been in app security for 25 years in software security testing. I've led successful security programs at companies like DocuSign, SAP Concur, Align Technology, and right now I'm at Toast as director of application security there. I have a few certifications, some of which are CEH, GMOB, CISSP, CSSLP. I have a master's in information security and assurance. I love gaining knowledge. When I'm not kind of geeking out on security stuff, I love being part of the security community. Uh, so I volunteer as a beta editor for Pentest Mag. I serve on EC Council's global advisory for CEH. I'm on the customer advisory board with Cobalt.io, none of which pay anything. So it'd be cool if someone came up with a formula for doing that. Outside of work, I'll just read sci-fi fantasy books. I love great movies. I love doing stuff with my family. I've been married for 34 years, dad of nine kids, two cute grandkids. I'm really about wanting to make an impact with those that I'm connected with. So mentoring, learning, all those things are kind of part of who I am. That's incredible, David. Thank you so much for this. I'm sure we're going to touch on a lot of these things through the rest of this conversation. Now, as you mentioned, you spent a lot of time in this industry doing application security. Tell me a little bit about how you got into AppSec. Where did you start? Well, I was in software testing at the time. We had released some software and within an hour or two, a benevolent individual from MIT called up and said, hey, I found the SQL injection on your software. Just curious if you knew about that. And we were like, what in the world? How did Because we had gone through these great tests. We were excited as a team of 25 highly skilled software testers. We had completely missed a whole area of security scanning and testing. So I designed the company's first AppSec team right then, quit my job as security tester and started AppSec and uh, have never looked back. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I'm guessing the world has changed a little bit in terms of technology since then. Have you run into, well, I guess we'll make it just a few minutes before we start talking about AI, but have you run into any interesting challenges or use cases with how you actually seen people use AI and any application security things to protect the use of AI? Is that even relevant from an AppSec perspective? Well, I think it will become more relevant. One of the articles I was editing was really interesting because it talked about how to use chat GPT as an assistant to hack into stuff. And the first week I tried it, I was able to have it generate code to create a package. And then a week later, I was asking similar questions and I said, hey, that's not ethical for me to give you the answer. So I had to figure out how to trick it to give me the answer. So it can do a lot of cool stuff. There's neat things. I think we have to be careful about what information we give it because you assume that anything you say is going to immediately be public. 
Yeah. So you can't talk about personal information. You can't talk about your company information. And then what access does that AI have? You know, what data can it access? So we have to make sure we answer those questions. I think, you know, using generative AI in the workplace, we just have to be cautious about information we give it and just assume that if you give it something, pretend that you're give, you're broadcasting on a loudspeaker. It's just yeah. not private. Yeah. But it is, it is fun. There's a lot of interesting, fun stuff. You know, there was a gentleman that, that created, you know, 10 years of books in nine months, you know, so there's a lot of stuff you can do to leverage, you know, leverage to create policies, leverage AI to help with other things. But when you get to actually testing and things like that, and it can generate code, be careful, you know, be cautious about that. Right. Yeah. And actually, you're right. I mean, we could, the one use case that the security team has been, security teams in general have been focused on is how to protect AI usage. But in fact, if you flip the coin, like how can we actually use generative AI, whether it's ChatGPT or Anthropic or what have you, any other models, how can we use them to actually make our own teams more effective? That can be a very powerful thing. I don't think there's been much conversation around it. I'm sure there will be more use cases of how you can use AI as a co-pilot for AppSec people. And we'll come to some of those use cases soon enough, but I, I'm pretty excited about those things as well. So, all right, let's talk about not AI-related stuff. David, you mentioned, I mean, we've talked before, and, and you seem to be one of those people who's who's seen so much in AppSec. And I love your methodical approach of building a program. And typically, I mean, what I know about you is you, you generally start from you know, a strategy, like what's your AppSec strategy? What's your security strategy in general, but how do you fit AppSec into that? Maybe tell our audience a little bit about how you think about building a security program from the beginning. Let's just say you're coming into a brand new role at a new company. How do you, what do you do? How do you start? Yeah, I think, you know, looking at how the industry and, you know, we're before this recording, you and I were just talking about how as a cybersecurity community, we do have a tendency to share stuff with the successes we see we want others to have that success, regardless of who they work for. And that's my philosophy as well. When you approach a strategy, you want to, first of all, have a collection of initiatives. These are things that we should be doing as an AppSec team. So if you imagine, what does a world-class AppSec team look like? What are all the things that they do? And then you take all those things. I like to bucket them in kind of a, a general prevent, detect, response kind of arena. And then I prioritize those. And oftentimes you have to work with the business. You need to know the business well to know how to prioritize those initiatives so it aligns with your business goals. You know, AppSec and business have to work together. Once you prioritize those, you can kind of come up with a plan and say, okay, what can I do this year? What can I do next year? And what can I do the year after that? So you kind of divide up the work. And, you know, if we had unlimited budget, unlimited resource, we wouldn't need a strategy, right? We just say, we want to do all the good stuff right now. And then you just plop it in and say, we're going to do everything. So to give a quick example, in the prevention area, you know, think about threat modeling, architecture review, think about policies, AppSec policies, all those, you know, security champions programs. You know, we've talked about other, how there are great examples out there of great security champion programs and, and moving those along. Security ambassador programs, you know, security education. Those are all kind of preventative things, but you have a list. So you're starting to build a list. Then in the detection side, kind of your standard SCA, SAS, DAS, MAST, IAS, internal app pen testing, fuzzing. There's a big list for the detection. That's kind of where most people think you start with the AppSec world. On the response side, that's where your security SLA stuff, your bug bounty programs, external app layer pen testing, CTF training, P-CERT, red team activities, all that kind of fun stuff is in that kind of section. Some of these things you own and drive as an AppSec team, some of them you want to be connected to. 
So once you build your list out, you kind of say, okay, these are the things I want to implement year one. You work with your boss, you work with the business and you say, okay, what can we afford to do? And then you start building your team based on what are the things you want to accomplish? And you talk about what's the resource capacity I need to have to do that. What are the things I need to have? What's the tooling that is most effective here? And you start with a core amount of stuff for year one and you build up from there. That is kind of a general strategy. It does involve also bringing in great people to the team. And so there's a strategy that's also part of hiring and bringing in, you know, year one, you don't necessarily want to bring in a lot of level ones. I know there's people that are beginning in the industry that don't want to hear that, but level ones are tough to bring in for an initial strategy. That's usually a year two, year three effort. So you're going to bring in level three and four and populate your team with people that know how to grab those initiatives, own them and drive them. As an AppSec leader, you're not going to do everything. You're going to be traffic control. Yeah. Right? So sign these out. You may have three areas of business that you focus on in the AppSec world. You're representing a line of business. Maybe you have five team members and you have five lines of business. And so each of them are assigned to do that. So there's work they do there, maybe onboarding them to make sure they're scanning and fixing their stuff appropriately. And then you have day-to-day work, which is incoming, hey, I have a PCI ticket I have to handle, or I have some emergency incident thing I have to handle. So there's different areas of work that you have to have capacity for. So you strategically create that plan. I said, this is now my hiring plan that's attached to that security that you just outlined. So that's kind of generally how you approach, I think, building a, a security team. As a leader, you know, before you can even build that out, you want to reach out and talk to the CTO, the other, the C-suite, what's going on, the senior levels that are in engineering to find out what their problems are. What are they using now? What's been effective historically? If anything, talk to the team, talk to other leaders on the security team and get a, a good footprint of what we have done successfully and what hasn't worked well. Maybe you'll get, say, hey, your security champion last year, you required 40% of the time of my engineers doing that. We hated it. It was a waste of time. Maybe we say, okay, let's revamp that to 5%. You know, yeah. So there's a lot of negotiating because you're there as a collaborative business partner, not as the team of no. Right, right. And that's fundamentally that negotiation, that discussion with other leaders, whether it's dev, cloud, whatever, or other teams, that's the responsibility of the leader. An AppSec leader, that's your job to make sure that you're aligned with other people's interests or you educate them. Now, a lot of times what I've seen is when you go into a company as a security leader, where other parts of the business have leaders that have been exposed to security in their previous jobs, let's say VP engineering or director of engineering or CTO, who worked in enterprise companies or worked in other companies that had security uh, that they had to work with, they totally understand it. Like if they've done this before, they know what to expect. Sometimes they have PTSD from it, but at least they know what to expect, right? The challenge becomes when you have a leader who's worked in a company that has never had security, and now you're having to work with them, and either they don't understand it, or they don't get the value of it, or they don't know how to partner with security. Have you run into situations like that where you've had to more educate them? Yeah, and it's something that's very similar you know, you want to bring in the compliance team and, and really understand what are some of the regulatory rule sets that company has decided to follow. And so you might be able to say, we'll just use PCI. That's a relatively common. If you're doing any kind of business with credit cards, you have to do PCS. So business leaders get the need to say, if we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, and I get the compliance is more of a checklist where security is 
operational. We want to make sure we're actually doing these things and that's it, done deeply, that we're protecting our customers. But you can leverage compliance. Be a partner with compliance and make sure that you're there. If they're saying, hey, we have an annual pen test requirement. Well, let's make sure that we do that deeply and well. And that we're fixing the stuff that we find and that we're then going back to those leaders that we talked to earlier and that we established a relationship with and reporting back to them. Maybe we may want to take the tact initially of when we do scans and we're not seeing developers fixing stuff that we find, and we'll use a SAST as an example. We scan a bunch of code. We find we have critical findings. Maybe we have 50 critical findings. We have a company SLA that's 30, 90, 180, something like that. You know, it's kind of a standard SLA. And we're not meeting that. How do we do that? I think the first thing is we collect the data, make sure it's good data, You know, maybe work with the security champions that we have and clean that up and then present that data. You know, Start with something simple saying, hey, these are the findings. This is how out of date we are. And this is where we need to be. And work with those leaders to kind of get a commitment. If we don't meet these obligations, we'll be out of compliance. You know, and so you can leverage that. And then I'm not saying bring that FUD. You know, we don't want to create that fear, uncertainty, doubt. We want to be the opposite. We want to have clarity, vision, and ensure that people know exactly what we're asking for. So creating that package and saying, here's the metrics that we care about. We need to get these fixed. Bring them in on the club. Typically, like you're saying, the CTO and others already kind of bought into that. Leverage them to kind of create that communication line. Maybe work with the developers and say, hey, can you put some of these metrics for your OKRs and, and add that to what you're doing on a regular basis? That leadership from the down and leadership from the bottom, getting both to align, absolutely critical. But you have to have your data really clean. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So I love what you mentioned is to begin setting the foundation by driving the business need, right? So whether it's compliance or some other business need that makes security compliance important. So you explain why, you answer the question of why you have to do this. And then you're, what you're proposing is you come at them with a very collaborative approach saying, I'm here to help you meet this business requirements. And this is how we can partner. And my team is here to help empower you and enable you to do the right thing in security. So then let's fast forward this a little bit more. And then you have your program defined, you've got security champions, you've got, you know, integrations into the SDLC. So you're doing things like your team is doing things like threat modeling and architecture reviews and has a number of different tools that's generating data and all of that stuff. So security activities typically generate a lot of, you know, work for the other teams and the challenge typically comes in and how do you get them to do the things that are actually important? And that's where that partnership and collaboration comes into the effect. So the very obvious thing, the general accepted practices, you work with the developers who are writing code and you train them, you educate them and, and hope and pray that they write the right thing and do the right thing, right? But in reality, it's much more complicated than that. Like there are multiple different roles, multiple different people. Do you have any thoughts on who the right people could be to drive that collaboration? What level of seniority, different roles in addition to just the developers? Yeah, I would say never forget the product manager right? They're the ones that help set that priority. So you have engineering, the CTO says, this is all the cool stuff we want to do. That product manager is going to come in and say, hey, based on marketing and sales, these are the things we need to go do first. And so don't forget that in your list of contacts of people that you build relationships with of trust, that you reach out to them and explain to them, what's the strategy? What's the vision? Why are we doing these things? You know, Helping them understand that why helps them reprioritize when you talk about a critical issue and say, this is something that someone can actually 
take and do something bad with. They can actually take over our data or they can do X, Y, and Z. That costs us a lot of money. Now, again, I wouldn't overemphasize the fact that it's going to happen. It's right around the corner. I'd focus more on these are general things that could happen. This is why we're asking that these critical issues be resolved. And start at the top. Don't start with, we're going to do everything all at once. We're going to start with, here's the critical things we're going to do. Step phase one, cross introducing AppSec to the world You know, at your company. Focus on the critical stuff first. That is a known issue that's easy to talk about exploits. Yeah. And create that story and help them tell the story. Again, it's not the story of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. It's a story of success and partnering with your customer, showing that you're, you know, your customer love by protecting them. And so I think pulling those product managers under your wing, help them know what's going on. All of a sudden you'll see those priorities shift and you'll get more work done, especially if you have good clean metrics to support that. You have a CTO that's supporting that. You've got to build this collaboration. It can never be, I have a shovel of stuff. I'm going to throw it over the wall. You better fix it or we're all dead. That just never, ever works anymore. Right. I love that call out for product managers because this was my personal learning as well. In one of my previous jobs, I didn't realize that. This was very early on. And we were doing the standard thing. We were training the developers and like, hey, developer, why didn't you fix this? You know, after months and months of complaining about it, which was not the right thing to do, we eventually realized that, hey, Developers actually don't decide in a lot of cases what goes into the sprint. It's the product managers or the engineering managers that decide it. So, so after several cycles of wasted effort, we realized, that, oh, holy shit, we have to actually talk to the product managers and they'll help us prioritize these things. So we did that and it just completely transformed the traction we got. Now in another company, the same thing failed because, and here's why, the product managers, they were all bought in. But what we didn't realize is the leadership at that time decided to categorize security as operational fixes. And in that organization, operational issues were a part of the engineering manager, where the product management was responsible for only for net new features and capabilities and things like that, revenue generating things, which was also an interesting learning. What is when you ask them to fix certain security issues, do they think of them as any other bug, meaning then it gets categorized into you know this 25% tech debt or however you, you categorize it, and it's not owned by product manager versus it's a business enabler and then the product manager prioritizes these things. Well, this is why I think as a leader, you have a responsibility to really show clear metrics. You know, you can't be the, the black box of everything goes into security and bad stuff comes out that makes us do extra work. You want to show very clearly, hey, these are the issues that we have. These are how fast we need to fix them. These are our initiatives. This is why we're doing this. This is how fast we're onboarding. You know, maybe you talk about overall security scores, you know, like a BSIM or something. They'll say, hey, this is why we need to do this. These are areas we can tune. I'd say don't pick more than three to five metrics that you want to really show anything more than that. And people get a little glossy eyed. The idea is you want to really make sure that you are focused on demonstrating actionable stuff and helping them know what is the action you expect them to take. You know, if you're showing, here's a critical issue, I've run SCA and we have these libraries that you need to update. Explain to them when it needs to be updated, where it needs to be deployed to, and help them get a clear picture. And that's where your emissary program or the people from your team that are representing those lines of business work with those security champions and pass on that clarity. So that's part of that is that the, the onboarding aspect, the metrics aspect, all of those things help people know that there is a clear direction that they have to take. What's my yeah. call to action? Are there different metrics or data points that you share with a product manager, engineering manager versus, let's say, a CTO? 
or a CSO? I think the details may change. Generally speaking, you want people to know these are all the teams we have. This is the amount of code we're scanning. You know, people want to know how much we're doing. What are the total number of critical issues that we're seeing? And so a CTO may want to look at overall, hey, I want to make sure I have all of my security champions assigned to my teams. I want to make sure that I am meeting all of my SLA goals of, of burning down these critical issues that we have. And every company has those. And I want to make sure that I'm, you know, as they may have a couple other metrics, but those are, you know, having a good concept of how you're onboarding, what you're fighting, how fast you're fixing it. Those are kind of your basics, I think. Of, and then the CTO just wants to know the big picture. They may not even want to know which LOB is having a problem. Whereas the, the LOB leader is not in, they want to be able to drill down and find out who in their LOB is not, you know, what team is struggling. And then the engineers just want to know which ones are the most critical that I have to put first on my list. Yeah. And giving them those details, keeping it, the ability to get, to drill down into it. Everybody may share the same dashboard. It's just that one person just looks at the big picture. Another one may drill at one level. Another one goes into the JIRA issue and says, I know now what I have to fix. Right. Yeah, that's a really good way to make decisions based on data rather than gut and instinct. And getting to that level of data is very, very difficult for a lot of companies, which is why Tromso exists because we enable data-driven programs. But at the end of the day, one of the things that you, what you actually mentioned, which caught my attention is you mentioned an LOB leader might care about which areas they're struggling in. So so maybe you can help us define, like, how do you determine a team or an area within the line of business is struggling or not? Is it volume of issues or is it something else? Yeah, I really haven't looked at volume of issues before as far as income, because some are, team sizes may depend. Some code is external facing, is more sensitive to different types of issues. Maybe it's a backend, it's a different type. So I focus more on how is the team reacting to the things we ask them to do. And so the SLA becomes one of those lights on the hill that says, am I meeting that? Am I doing that? Do I have the correct sense of urgency on my team? It's intelligent urgency, not panicked urgency, right? So I know what it is I'm supposed to do, what it is and what the goals are. And we see teams all the time that some teams are just, they keep putting off some of those urgent things because there's other urgent things, that the, the shoulder tapping. So a lot of the time it's education. I'm going to those teams and say, hey, we're noticing that you're struggling to hit these SLAs. What can we do to help? If they say, hey, code for us, and the answer is, of course, no. But it might be education. It might be, hey, we want to do this because I've never met a developer that says, I want to write unsecure code, right? Hi. They want to do it, but this product manager or this someone else is telling me I have to do this first. So maybe I discover who is the person I really have to talk to. So it could be a product manager. It could be an engineering manager that I haven't met with yet that doesn't understand the vision. Very rarely will you run across a brick wall that just you just can't pass through. The current quality of people that I work with, there's that desire to do what's right. And this has been true for the last at least five or 10 years where they want to do what's right. They know what they need to do. They need your help to convince someone else potentially to help them do what's right. Yeah. And that's where that, that clarity of data comes in, where they have a picture, there's a story behind it. They can tell the story and inspire someone else to give them higher priority. This is such a great topic. And it actually... Once you start investigating the data, the underlying root causes become so very apparent because on a superficial level, you might say, oh, that team doesn't give a shit about security. They don't care about security. But the problem is when you actually look into the data, when you have a conversation based on it, their MTTRs might be super long or they might be breaking yeah. SLAs all the time because they don't have enough people. 
their roadmap is super full of very high customer-driven feature requests, and they just don't have the time to do this, which means somebody has to create that time, somebody has to create that opportunity, and that's not security team. It's somebody in the dev or engineering leadership who has to take that mandate. So then you talk to whoever that person is, whoever that individual is, so they can create that time. So this is really good insight. Like if you have all of this data, if you're measuring and tracking all of this, then you can get yourself away from complaining about dev teams not doing things or not fixing things and actually find out what the root cause is and go to the root cause and try to fix it, which is decision-making at the right levels. You're kind of hinting at some stuff here, which is how do we affect security culture based on data? And I'm going to even move away from that and say, how do we affect security culture as a whole? How do we get people to know that what they have to do that's right and to motivate them to move in that direction? You know, we talked about security champion programs. I think holding regular, maybe monthly or whatever periodic time you, you feel works best for the company, holding regular meetings where you're that glass box, not opaque, but clear, that people know exactly what you're looking at, the data that you're looking at, how you're accessing that, how you're finding these things, how they can help. Even asking them to come and talk about what's the story for their team? How did they overcome not meeting SLAs to now meeting SLAs? You know, So look for those. And as you bring people into this security champions meeting, they begin to inspire each other. That then goes to the rest of the development teams and also their leadership and inspires them to also do more. And I think it's a combination of things. You know, you want to have people know what the clear vision is, have a clear strategy yourself, make sure the data itself is crystal clear, that there's no ambiguous data there to make sure that you bring in the right people, that you have contacts, collaborations. It's this whole kit together that helps you be successful and builds that security culture as a company. Right. Yeah, and it's great that you mentioned security culture. And, and we were talking about some of these aspects in terms of how do you not only build the right security culture within the company, but how do you bring the right people to your team that reflect the culture that you want to build within within the company? And we've talked about, you know, obviously, so you mentioned, you know, hiring very senior people early on in year one because they can operate sort of independently. They can operate in, in sort of unknowns and and then eventually scaling your team with relatively more junior people, giving them an opportunity to grow as well. And you've done a lot of work in mentorship and working with the community. Love to hear a little bit more about what is the nature of that work and what motivates you towards doing that? Yeah, I, I had, I'll just tell you a quick story. One of my wife's best friends reached out and said, hey, I have a couple of kids. They don't really know what they want to do in life. They feel like they're kind of done with their education and they're still wondering what to do. Can David go talk to them? And so I reached out and just kind of, I just had him come over to the house and there was two brothers. One was actually a police officer at the time. Another one was married. The wife was providing the income and they were kind of being a bother. So they're like, I got to get a job so I don't get beat up by my spouse. You know, I got to do something. And we started talking about this and at a light level to say, hey, why don't you try programs like tryhackme.com? They're they're cheap to inexpensive. If you use it less than an hour a day, it's free, you know, and you can experiment and see if this is something you're interested in. And I started talking about that, but I recognized that they both had something that was really unique and that was curiosity. And I wanted to feed that curiosity. And so we started meeting weekly just for a little bit of time. And I've done this for the last 10 years. Sometimes it's remote. Sometimes it's in the house with treats, you know, whatever works best geographically. But starting with a program to say, is there some kind of curiosity and 
Are they willing to feed it? Within a very short time, they had already got, they were hungry. They wanted to do EJPT with INE.com. So they gobbled that up. Meanwhile, they're playing with Try Hack Me. They're playing on the Hacker 101 CTF. They're gaining points. Within six months, they were both operating as bug finders on the Hacker One platform. They were getting ready to apply for internships. So I started doing mock interviews. We worked on resumes and getting things built out. And this is taking an hour every other week for me. It wasn't like it was a tremendous amount of time. But today, those brothers are working in the field. That, that meta doesn't always happen. I had another one I did this with that said, you know what? That's not for me. But they at least got the flavor and realized, okay, now I know what that's about. I don't know if I'm, I'm interested. But part of mentorship is helping someone find their real passion and giving them little clues and, and breadcrumbs that you want them to follow. It's not shoving stuff, you know, food on their plates and you have to eat this. It's if you're interested, let me know and I'll give you more. Anyway, it was just fun. Now, of course, I was talking to a police officer the other day and like, oh, you're the one that you looked at me. You're the one that pulled officer so-and-so away from the job now because <laughs> a police officer, now they're fighting the bad guys virtually. So it can get you in trouble if you're not careful. But it was a lot of fun to see that these two very smart, hungry individuals found something that they could get into. And it helps kind of fill that, what we were talking about again before the show, where we have this massive need out here in the cybersecurity world for great people to come in. And the colleges and other staff aren't feeding it fast enough. They're not feeding that hunger fast enough. So if we're a senior, as senior leaders, we pull in and we mentor one or two people every, even once a year, then that's going to do something beyond what's currently happening. And that's going to help fill that need, I think. Yeah. That's such a great initiative. You know, it's a double-sided help where, you know, these folks who have this genuine curiosity are very smart and talented. They get opportunity to make a really good living as well as security engineers, you know, a good, solid career. And it helps the security community with the talent shortage that we've been struggling with for what ever since, I guess, you know, there's never been enough cybersecurity people. So this is fantastic. And by the way, on that note, I've hired people from the military before into cybersecurity. And the commonality that I saw was what we were talking about earlier, which is cybersecurity is so mission-driven. Like yeah. talk about mission-driven communities, and that's your healthcare community, your, your police community, your military community. They're all very mission-driven, exactly the same as cybersecurity people. So there's a lot of commonalities. If, if they are curious enough, if they're interested in this mission, there will be really, really good talent sources for within cybersecurity. Well, I think it's even more of that community. You know, when you think about, look back on your last 10 years, when you come up with an idea, you don't keep it under a bag or in a closet somewhere. You bring it out and say, hey, I have some new ideas I want to share with everybody. And what do, what do you think? So, you know, these ideas of an application security strategy or, you know, a security champion program. If you go out there and Google, look up security champion programs, look at something, you'll find so much great data that's free because I don't hold out high down. Now, of course, we want to monetize something, but the reality is this general basic knowledge, we want everybody to have. We want every company to know how to do a basic security champion program, a basic security strategy. Everyone should know how to do that. And so that knowledge we freely give because we want to, the rest of our community family we want them to know that and be protected as well. Yeah, that's incredible. Have you had success hiring security people in your jobs from non-security fields yourself? Yeah, I've been at companies where I have a an established team and I'm I'm kicking up what I call a junior team. Maybe I want to kick off a, a pen testing team that I can I can bring in some 
year ones that are very curious and hungry that will do the work. And I've brought in a couple interns and that I then realized this person, and we put them on this, this free educational track. And so part of their job is to do stuff, but part of their job, the biggest part, I asked them to educate themselves. And so they, at the end of the internship, we offered them jobs as said, come on board. And their previous job either was a student with zero experience, and they had that curiosity and hunger. In one case, they didn't have any, a four-year or two-year degree. They were just like, I just want to do this. I was, one of them, it was in floral design. And you're like, what does that have to do with, well, that creativity, that curiosity, that hunger to learn came out and they realized, oh, this cybersecurity stuff sticks. It's exciting to me. And so all of a sudden we went from one profession to another that was completely unrelated, but those attributes of willing to work hard, curiosity, excitement to learn every day came out and they became a phenomenal pen tester. So it has happened. It's fun to see that, you know? Yeah. That's awesome. We're going to need more and more of these, obviously, and uh, have people that keep themselves updated with all of these things happening around us in terms of technology, right? I mean, we are just scratching the surface of the new technical innovations, whether it's AI or some other things, and the world is going to move really, really quickly. So being able to adopt quickly, being able to learn and partner with other people, keep yourself updated, is super important as security people. David, this is all the time we have today for this recording. Thank you for such a phenomenal conversation. Love this recording and uh, hope we can do this again. Thanks. And you sorry. Thanks for listening to the Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.